Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, my trusted roommate for many years over in Berlin, Jens Vogt. How you doing, Jensi? I'm pretty good, and I'm really happy that we do this recording now because I just finished working in the garden and I had enough of it. So now I have an official excuse to my wife. Honey, I love you to pieces, but I gotta stop working in the garden because I gotta do my other job now. So thanks, Bobby, for saving my behind. Well, that's funny that you say that because it has been raining quite a bit here in Greenville, South Carolina, and it, tomorrow it's supposed to rain again. So... After the podcast today, my task is to go out and weed whack and mow the backyard, you know, obviously blow everything. And that's that's kind of a two-person job, in my opinion. And I always ask my wife or my daughters to kind of come out and help. And they kind of come out and look around and then go on their phone. And I'm just like, okay, go back in the house. I, I've got a protocol on how to do this as efficiently as possible, and you're messing it up. So I'll be feeling your pain, Yenzi. Um, listen, holy cow, there was a lot of bike racing uh, this week. We kind of left off last week with talking about Mark Cavendish's comeback with um, you know not winning a stage, but uh, actually leading the Copa Bartoli. And the Copa Bartoli, after all, was was won by young Jonas Venegard from Jumbo Visma. One other race that uh, I know you and I have done in in the past, which is uh, okay, it's not one of the the biggest races, but um, Grand Prix Cholet Pays de Loire. Here's another comeback. We have Ella Viviani getting back on the horse and and winning, but not without a little bit of typical. Nasser Buhani um, sprint issues. Yeah, that was um, well. It's it's Nasser Buhani. It's it's him. He won't change it anymore. And um, yeah, going left, going right, touching people's arms here and there. It's well. What can you say? And he broke uh, or in the crash, um, Jake Stewart's hand uh, was uh, broken, so it was a pretty bad crash, to say the least. I, I it could have been worse, Yenzi. You know, like those barriers that we've talked about. You know, ever since what happened in Tour of Poland last year, we've talked about why aren't there better barriers? But that was the one blessing in disguise of this terrible incident is that those those barriers, those new safety interlocking barriers, um, created by a company Bowplan based in Belgium saved a really bad situation just like it has in the past when those have been been there so it's just great to see that um more and more races are putting up these safety barriers because yes that was terrible a terrible move on buani's part um how jake stewart actually didn't crash is is a minor miracle Unfortunately, he must have hit something there and broke his hand, which is going to take him out of some races. But I think it could have been worse. I think it could have been worse. Um, another interesting thing is the the high-tech signs that are being rolled out. A couple years ago in the Giro, I remember seeing the footage and seeing these like screens that would pop up and alert the riders or under the 25-to-go banner or... 5k to go banner or the 1k to go banner it was like a, a rolling billboard and i was like wow that's cool but now this 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 company um ran out of norway called safe cycling race are testing and putting more and more of these little signs these automated signs that make a sound and are very very clear with with impending danger and that's another just beautiful addition to the sport. I mean, we didn't have that back in our days, but I think that they're going at a much, much faster pace and these signs are really going to help. What do you think? Is that too new school or are you good with that, Yenzi? These new... No. Hey, whatever increases the safety and the security of the riders is good. It doesn't matter if it's old school or new school. If it's effective and it works, I'm all in for it. So yes, you are absolutely right here. They are some good new inventions and 
Hopefully we see him at all the races and we see more of that. But yes, we go in the right way. No, I love him. I would be happy if we would have had him back in our days because um, yeah, they give you some valuable warnings of obstacles or things that happened ahead of you. So yeah, no, absolutely. I'm absolutely fascinated by them and I do support the whole idea. One crash that definitely comes to mind is one of our old teammates, Kurt Osla Arvison in the Tour de France, when he hit the sign and supermaned over it. Like if there would have been one of those there, or even I think it was in Vuelta Catalunya uh, last week where one of the Cannondale riders hit a sign like, you know, I mean, dead on, dead on. There was no one there saying that there was that, that, that sign there. And okay. There was a little bit of uh, jostling for wheels there, but when when riders are on their limit, they're not necessarily making the the best choices. And if there's something that can be put there that's safe, that allows the actual humans to be you know patrolling the intersections, I I, I see nothing but but good things from that. Another interesting thing that I kind of been interested in ever since you called me and asked me about this crazy thing called Everstein and you came up with this plan of doing the Everstein attempt in Berlin on a 80 meter climb that you did how many times did you go up and down that hill it was 90 meters and I did a hundred times to make sure I reached the elevation I just aimed at 9,000 meters altitude which is um 18 20 about 27,000 feet I believe yeah um I don't think you correct uh, correctly picked the, the location because Irishman Rowan McLaughlin just blew the existing Everstein record out of the water. He did that on March 23rd. He did 8,848 meters in six hours, 40 minutes, and 54 seconds. So which what climb would, did he pick? That I don't know. Because uh, I don't know every climb out there, but I would assume that it would have been a, a, a longer, maybe not longer, but steeper climb than what you had. But can you tell me, do you remember how long it took you to do your Everstein attempt? Uh, yes. So he did it in six hours and 40 minutes, correct? It took me um, precisely 19 hours and 20 minutes longer. <laughs> I did 26 hours in total, more than an entire day. But I was retired. I was older. It was 3rd of January. We had snow and ice at night. I had to change my brake pads once or twice. I had a puncture. So, but hey, he is awesome. And I was just slow and steady, but he was awesome. That's an impressive achievement. Six hours 40 to reach 8,848 meters of altitude gaining. I'm blown away. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I think it all has to do, obviously, with the rider, but that that course, what allows you to get up and get down, especially get down. That's what I was worried about with you, was you were doing it at night during the winter months with snow. I think you did it on your cross bike in Berlin. I was more worried about you coming down than going up, to be honest. So. These guys have got it dialed. It's it's a science. And uh, I just got to wonder how much lower this is going to go. It's out of control. One last thing, Yenzi. I need your opinion. You you are a man with your ear to the ground over there in, in Europe. Perry-Roubaix. Is it canceled or not? I believe it will happen. Because otherwise they would have already canceled officially, really. So teams could make other plans to race somewhere else or go home or plan their season. They cannot just, you know, call it off like two days earlier. Second, uh, the ASO, it's a bloody huge and influential company in France. And they managed to um, do the Tour de France last year. It worked out with the COVID-19 bubble. All the teams stayed in their bubbles, no spectators. So I believe it will happen. Yes. Plus, hey, it's for them and their sponsors and the TV. It's important to make it happen um, because, you know, it's difficult times right now in the world, in Europe, in France with COVID-19. People need something positive, something nice to, to watch and to look for. Um, so I believe it will happen. Yes. 
I'm so glad that you said that because over here in the U.S., it sounds like it's it's definitely off. But Perry Roubaix in its original historical slot in April is so much better than Perry Roubaix in October. I mean, I'll still sit on my couch with a six pack of beer and a pack of potato chips and get into it. But there's something about the buildup. There's something about the historical value of these guys suffering in these early season races, getting through the 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 smaller well i mean they're still big but the 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 non-monument classics in the build-up and staying up there in belgium and being in their bubble and then hitting peru bay on on that beautiful sunday in in april i hope it works i hope it works yes it will and dear people just an idea of how crazy it is. When I did my first ever Paris-Roubaix, it was, of course, it was raining and muddy and terrible conditions. And in the morning, I'm in a team bus and everybody starts taping their wrists. So I go, yeah, I can understand that because, you know, all the vibrations on your hands, you tape the wrists to give it more stability. I'm okay, I do that. Then they started to tape their shoulders, arms, elbows, and their hips. I'm like, what the heck? Well, why do you tape all that? They go, well... Once you crash, first you take off the tape and only at the second crash you take off your skin. They looked at me like, Yenzi, it's not a question if you crash or not. The only question is how often will you crash and how hard. But you're gonna crash regardless. And I was just chitting myself. I was a neo pro back then. I'm like, I'm not sure if I really want to do this now. I'm telling you, my friends, Paris Robet is as close as it gets to the old gladiator games in the Roman Empire. Believe me, it is you fight for life and death out there. I got a few more stories. If we have time for it, for the next episodes, I got another story where still the hair raises at my uh, um, neck when I just think about it. So yeah, stay tuned. More stories to come. Well, you don't have to worry about those sort of stories from me because I never did Peru Bay. Now, do I regret it? Yeah, maybe. But uh, not back then. Not back then. Tom Pidcock has done it all in his young career and is just only turning 22 this July. From a young age, he's always seemed to be on a different trajectory path of his development than your average junior. Competing and winning in events on the road, the track, mountain bike, cyclocross, including the national championships, the European games, and the world championships, he just seems to have no limits to his potential. Now that he's riding for powerhouse Ineos Grenadiers, he has wasted no time in announcing his presence on the world's biggest stage. He's already won Peru Bay as a junior and an under 23. Will he one day, one day, lift the cobblestone above his head in that famous velodrome in Roubaix at the pro level? I'm telling you, I would not bet against it. Today, Tom Pickcock. Welcome to Bobby and Jens, Mr. Tom Pidcock. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I will be honest and say that I've been following you for a few years and incredibly impressed with your racing style. But I need to ask you one question, like right off the bat. Didn't you get the memo that you're supposed to be intimidated, especially at your size, in the classics with the big boys, didn't didn't someone tell you that uh, you got to be scared of these dudes? <laughs> I've been I've been used to being uh, the small guy having to race the big guys my whole life, so I'm used to it by now, you know. Hey, Tommy, I must say, it's it's a little painful chatting with you because you are only eight days younger than my second son, and that tells me how old I am. So. <laughs> Back to your childhood. What made you start racing? Where and when did you get your first bike? When did you ever show the first time interest in becoming a cyclist? Uh, well, my dad was a cyclist. He raced in France. He rode World Student Games. Uh, yeah, he always rides his bike on the weekends, rides to work. He was still, he was still racing for a long time, actually, um, until a few years ago. Um, so, yeah, that's how... I naturally was just introduced to cycling and I guess, yeah, it was, it was kind of the sport that I became yeah most successful at. I enjoyed the most. I gained a 
yeah, big uh, group, friendship group within cycling, locally, nationally. Um, so yeah, it was kind of where I was most myself and where my friends were. And it was kind of, yeah, it just became my life really. And what age was that? Um, honestly, I don't really remember. I, like I went for a ride with uh, Lawrence the Plus the other day and he said this, we rode past the, the finish line of where he won his first race. And he said, where did you win your first race? And I was like, honestly, I have no idea. Um, I don't really remember the, the, yeah, the start of my, my time cycling, racing. Um, but I think, I think my first race was in Castle Coombe down south. We were staying at a friend's house and yeah, my chain fell off and yeah, it was, it's just, I think I was maybe eight, 10 years old. Didn't, didn't go great, but okay. I'm still here. Okay. So is that early, but. Yeah, I have I have to say when you get to be Jens and I's age, then you can say I don't remember. But at twenty two, <laughs> come on, bro, you gotta you gotta like read your own headlines or something like that. But hey, well, that's twenty one still. Yeah, what do you turn twenty two in uh, in July, right? July. Yeah, yeah. So at least you're you're legal over here in the states. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, starting off so young, I want to make sure that I kind of paint a picture for our listeners of you know, what teams you rode for and kind of the progression throughout those years. But is it correct that you started with the Great Britain Junior Academy? And if so, tell us a little bit of that. Yeah, that was, yeah, a really good time, actually, that, like fond memories, you know, like it was every year we'd go on maybe five camps We'd ride on the track and go out on road rides and there's um I think nine or ten of us on each year. And there's just two years while we're on juniors. Um then yeah, we go abroad on trips in the van. Drive from Manchester all the way down to Calais. Well, to folks to Folkestone and over to Calais. And um yeah, there were really good memories, you know, like Roubaix, races in Germany, Trofeo Carlsberg, I think it's called. Um, and yeah, now now there's there's five guys my age all now in the World Tour, so we're waiting for the day that we're all in the same race together. And who are those guys? Uh, so me, Jake Stewart, Ethan Hayter, Fred Wright, and Matt Walsh. So all, we're all on different teams, apart from, apart from me and Ethan. We're both in, in the US. Yeah, Jake and Ethan are definitely in the news as well, some for some good yeah. reasons and some for some bad reasons. But uh, so... Yeah, Jake the other day in the yeah. incident in the sprint. Not great, not great. But mixing cyclocross and road with different teams, bikes, sponsors... I mean, how does that all work? I mean, I, I had a hard time. I started to think a couple of years ago that maybe there was two Tom Pidcocks because, you know, you were on this team and then that team and then this team started and this team folded and then you switched from this team. But like, how complicated is it doing a cyclocross season with a road season being on two different teams? To me, it sounds difficult, but is it to someone like yourself? Um... Well, at first when I yeah progressed out the juniors, yeah, I was I was world champion in cyclocross, world champion time trial on the road, and you know I got offers from a lot of cyclocross teams, um, yeah to ride for them, and all Belgian ones, and I kind of thought you know that like these are good offers, you know I'm young, I'm going to get paid, and it was. It was all great, but then I thought, you know, I want to ride on the road still as well. Um, so yeah, we came up with the with the conclusion that I'd ride for Wiggins on the road and Telenet off road, and then I could get the both best of both worlds really. And yeah, everyone was happy with that. And but then I quickly realised that you know, for me to be able to perform in Belgium, I need kind of to feel more well closer to home. Um, so that's then how. TPR and 
more recently Trinity Trinity Racing came about where uh, yeah Andrew my my uh, agent my manager kind of basically set this team up for me to help progress until I yeah turned world top basically. Well, now that you talk about like uh, doing all these different sports within cycling, how difficult is it for you or how much time does it take you to change from your cyclocross position on the bike to a road bike or to a TT bike? Because at least for now, you seem to be pretty good at all of it. It like you just jump on another bike and you go, yeah, this feels like home or like, is it complicated um, for you? Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly not just jump on and you know you can go out and you feel great but yeah it it does only take a few days really but um yeah you have to kind of periodize it what's coming up what bike i'm going to ride on and i and i kind of ride every bike now and again so that when i come on i haven't it's not like i've not ridden it in months um that's how i kind of do that i guess well you did a lot in 2017 you know you won the world cyclocross championship that winner in luxembourg becoming the only um right british rider other than our boy roger hammond to do that and he did that back in yeah. uh the early 90s so it had been a while but then you go he, he won he won that race in round park which is one mile from my parents house Oh, that's cool. So that's also, that's a cool story also. Yeah. That's the park that I grew up riding around on my mountain bike. Awesome. Awesome. And then, then you go to Paris-Roubaix and win the junior race, attacking in the Carfe des Arbes like all the, the legends uh, do. Then in May of that year, I read that you won a Criterium race. In July, you won the Elite British National Circuit race. In August, you won the British National Scratch Championships on the track. In September, okay. then you went on and won the World Championship Time Trial Juniors in, in Norway. I mean, if that's not a jack-of-all-trades, uh, there's, there's no such thing. I mean, the only thing that's missing there is the mountain bike that you got into a little bit later. But that must have been fun. I mean, going from winning the Junior Paris-Roubaix Cyclocross World Champ world champion, the TT, I mean, man, tell, tell us a little bit about how you did that because you said, you talked about priority, uh, your, your periodization, but like at that age as a junior, who was helping you make all these decisions or were you just like, hey man, I'm a bike racer, I'm gonna race my bike. As long as it has two wheels, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah, so well, when I was a junior, I had two people helping me, um, who are still two of the most influential people in my career, I would say, um, who've helped me get where I am. And that's Stuart Blunt, who was the academy coach, and Seth Seth Smith, who was uh, who managed the cross team that I rode for at the time, Paul Mills Oldfield. And so that winter, I only lost one cyclocross race, and that was the only cyclocross race where he was not at and that was in uh, Germany, um, a World Cup where I crashed, my chain got stuck. Um, and then, yeah, Stuart was kind of my coach through the whole time. Um, the guy who I went to every road race with and, and kind of looked after all those boys on the academy. And yeah, he was kind of the guy I turned to whenever yeah, I had a problem or, you know, well, yeah, it's, it's when you're young and you're you're keen, you you want to train, and and he's the he's the guy who kind of just yeah kept it all together really, and it's just just junior racing at the end of the day. So when we talked about all these uh, events and results, did you actually know yourself what type of rider are you? You're like a one day rider, a TT specialist. Um, classics or stage races, climber, sprinter, or do you actually know yet where you place this or you just try everything still? I, I, I just try everything still. I know, I know I'm not a bunch sprinter. I can tell you that. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, at the moment I think, I think I am capable of 
anything. I mean, it's not to sound big-headed, but I, you know, I, I want to be, you know, I want to be capable of, of everything. Um, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm just always sub 60 kilos. So it's, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not the, going to be the most powerful guy. And I think I probably, I do want to end up focusing on grand tours, but not any time in the near future. So the answer to your question was D, all of the above, Yenzi. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. So let's move on to after you rode for Wiggins, uh, actually when you were riding for the Wiggins team, now you go back to Paris-Roubaix and now you win the under-23 Paris-Roubaix. Um, first British rider ever to do so. You already won it as a junior. Now you won it as, as an under-23 I mean, the writing's on the wall here, Tommy P. Is this going to be a race that you're obsessed with because you've had success at the, at the younger levels? Is this something that we're going to see you hoisting that famous cobblestone on the velodrome in Roubaix one day? I do. I do hope that one day I'll be doing that, yeah. It's, I, it's for sure one of my favorite races. For sure. You mean, like, you know, like, I think any junior who rides that, rides the junior Roubaix will fall in love with that race because I think for, for my career, that will be one of my favorite races, riding the junior Roubaix. You know, you're a junior and you get to ride the same day as the elites and the crowds are there and well, not all of them, but most of them. And it's just absolute carnage. And, uh, <laughs> So for for sure, I want to try and win Roubaix, but you know, I think the weight the weight will be the biggest biggest factor as whether I'm able to do that or not. But it's not going to stop me from trying. I love it. I love it. One more thing I wanted to hit about hit on in in 2019 is that you were fourth in the World Championships under 23 in Yorkshire, but you moved up to third with the disqualification of Niels Eikhoff who now rides for Team DSM, I, I believe. But watching that on TV, yeah. I just could not help but feel so sorry for that kid. You being in the race, I'd be interested to hear what was your opinion of that situation with him taking that toe, being allowed to race, being allowed to be in the front, you know, winning the sprint, and then him being DQ'd afterwards. How did you feel about that, that ruling? Um... Well, I don't, I don't think, I don't actually know what happened, you know. Um, I've got no problem with people drafting behind cars to get back onto a race. But, you know, I was told that he drafted for a very long time and he was very far out the back of the race. And I think that is kind of taking the piss, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, what happened, so I can't really, I can't really say, to be honest. It's not, it's not my place where I don't know what happened. Um, but it was nice for me to be on the podium. So, yeah. Yeah, obviously. But I, I was just curious because when we reported on that, it seemed so unfair. But I never really got the details of what happened. So thanks for, for sharing that yeah. a little bit. No, us. but I think it's the, the rules are stupid. You know, if, like this, whatever happened, he, he managed, he won the world championship. And then they took him out after the race because the rule is that the rider is allowed to, um, what is it called? Debate or, or whatever the, the jury's decision. Um, and that they need, they should change that rule because I mean, he affects the whole race. If he should have been disqualified, he affects the whole race. Um, and then they take him out afterwards. I mean, yeah. Let's move to some easier and nicer memories. You won the baby Giro. <laughs> Tell us about that, fighting back from a quite a big time loss, actually, to then taking stages seven and eight. How did you manage that comeback? Um, yeah, that was, it was, it was, a, it was a nice race, actually. I mean, I, I, I wanted to, like last year, the year before, you know, before Yorkshire Worlds, like I crashed out of Lavenier and, got a concussion and like fractured like five bones and smashed my face up and things. Um, and I feel like, you know, I could have won 
Yorkshire, um, that Lavenir, and then I think I could have won Yorkshire as well because I, I had two and a half weeks off the bike on antibiotics and things, two weeks training, and then I rode the worlds. Um, so I kind of was you, like went to the baby Giro's like, I need to make it up for myself from the year before. Um, so that's kind of how I went into the race, and then, and then I won, and then yeah, I kind of all forgot about the year before. Um, to an extent, I guess. Spring is finally here. If you're just getting back on the bike and worried you're not in race form, don't worry. Active Pass from outside has you covered. Me and Jens are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events, and more, including access to premium content from other outside publications like Velo News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, and Backpacker. And there's more coming soon, including Peloton Magazine. All in all, it's a $350 value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code BobbyYens25 at checkout, you'll get another 25% off. Go to velonews.com forward slash active pass and enter BobbyYens25. That's B-O-B-B-Y-J-E-N-S 25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. Now back to our chat with Tommy P. But backing up a little bit in 2020, before the lockdown happened, this is where young Tommy P made his absolute kick down the front door of the world with getting silver behind Matthew Vanderpoel in the World Cyclocross Championships. But then you had to go in lockdown. How did that period go for you? And, you know, what was the training? What was the buildup like up to the baby Giro? Because obviously the baby Giro, you were hitting your form just right, you know, getting that time yeah. back, like, like you just said, and winning those stages towards the end as well. Um, what was it like for you as coming off such a high and then not more than a month later, it was locked down until August? Yeah, so I, I um, straight after the cross season, I went to Andorra, kind of moved into my apartment and then went back to the UK for some time off. Um, then was in South Africa for Cape Epic for my first race of the year and then yeah, then the whole world shut down. Um, so I made the decision to fly home to the UK, to my parents' house, just in, so I didn't get stuck anywhere. Um, like in, in Andorra, new place um, that I'd never really, yeah, not don't want to be stuck there by myself when I've just moved there. Um, so yeah, I went, I went, I flew home. And honestly, it was like one of the best summers ever. You know, there's no stress kind of just forget about the racing, riding my bike, going out with my brother, long mountain bike rides. It was like actually a really, really nice summer, but I, I ended up riding my bike, you know, like, yeah, 26 to more than 30 hours each week, just kind of riding. And that, that probably did me really good for the, for the season in the end. And the weather was great as well, so that helped. And then using that form that you had, uh, coming out of the baby Juro, you raced the elite world road race championship because unfortunately, because of the, the COVID situation, they canceled all the younger, the junior and the under 23 categories. And yeah. you finished, you know, very respectable. I mean, you were definitely up there kicking around. What did you learn in that first 250, 260 kilometer race that maybe you didn't know prior to that? Yeah, so, and it was it was actually a really good experience. I mean, I never expected to be there at the finish because there's no way you can prepare prepare for. I think it was like over two seventy actually. Um, I don't think you can prepare for. There's no way you can prepare for that from doing under twenty three races. Um, so I kind of just went as like a rehearsal for for the future, I guess, and. Um, yeah, so I was just kind of with Luke, glued to Luke Groves' back wheel all day, and yeah, 
so what a, he's incredible at his job um and then yeah and what i learned was that actually it's never full gas you know like it's not it's not the same as as a cross race or a road race where they can explode up the up the hills at the end it's kind of just a wearing down process until you run out of energy and then when they go at the end i mean yeah they're going but it's not like anyone's setting pbs and it's just yeah who who basically saves the most energy and yeah that was the biggest thing to me like i knew it was far but i thought you know these guys will be you know going fast but it's never actually that fast it's just really far and then a little further on that year you became twice world champion in austria um, but I'm really interested um, about your e-bike world championships because me getting soon 50 years old, that's my only chance for a comeback. E-bike racing. So tell me all about that, please. <laughs> it's, um, it's interesting, interesting sport, actually. It's, it's harder than, yeah, you might think. I mean, because, yeah, the bike's only limited to 25k an hour, so... If you're going faster than that or you're going up a really steep hill, you need to kind of, you need to keep it at the max speed the whole time. So it's, for sure, it's not the same as riding a, a bike where you have to push all the way up the hill. Um, but yeah, when you get to the steep parts, you have to go as hard as you can. And then also on the flat, you have to try and push it harder than, harder than um, over the limit. So you basically do all the work. And... Um, Yeah, people were saying before that it's harder than normal racing, but I never really found that. Actually, it was it was it was just super fast. Even on the uphills, you have to concentrate so hard because you're just going so quick, <laughs> like round hairpins, and uh, it's like a video game, really. So when I do bike tours with my wife, she has an e-bike, and she tells me that she's suffering. She's working. Can I take a word for it? Is that true? Is she actually working and pedaling? I. I think you need to check which mode she's in, actually. Uh, we, uh, we just had a software update, and the printout was uh, 94% at the max uh, category. <laughs> That's what I don't get. That's what no, I don't get. That, I think we need to do Oh, an average, 94%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, then maybe she's not trying. <laughs> <laughs> don't, do not tell her that, Jens, and do not let her listen to this podcast. She's the only one in the world that's not allowed to listen to it. But that's what I, that's what I find so interesting about that is there, there's got to be a right and wrong technical way to do an e-bike race. I, I think that's a total other podcast in the future because when you won that, I was just like, huh, you know, what, what, I wonder why he's doing that. And then a few days later, you win the under 23 mountain bike championship. And I'm curious... Not that you did the e-bike because I think that's awesome and that. I'll tell you why I did the e-bike. It's because I got to keep the e-bike. <laughs> that a boy. That a boy. Yeah. Wow. Good. Awesome. There, hey, well done. Is the best policy, and um, those e-bikes are not cheap. Um, any sponsors no. out there that would like to um, provide Yenzi and I with an e-mountain bike? You know, now that we're turning 50, it's we have some big birthdays coming up. So hint, hint, we're um, we're we're available. <laughs> But. Um, I'm more interested, so you do the under 23 World Mountain Bike Championship and you win pretty easily. And it was said that you were doing times that were faster than the, the elite riders. What, what was yeah. your decision-making process in deciding which world championship to do? The under 23 that you would probably most likely, well, let's be honest, definitely win? Or the, the senior race that you maybe had a 50% chance of winning? What, what went into that um, Yeah, so I said this afterwards, and I said this to Kurt, who's now my guy that looks after me, yeah, everywhere, through everything. He's like, yeah, he, he's he's the man now. And um, I said, oh, I'm pissed off. I should have done the elite race, and I wouldn't be elite world champion. And, and he was like, yeah, but he always talks sense into me, you know, and he said, Well, look, I mean, in a normal year, maybe you would have done the elite race. We would have realized that. But when you did your first World Cup one week ago, 
and you have one week to decide whether you, well, the plan was to ride the under twenty three from the start, and you you do one World Cup, uh, you win, and then you have the the Worlds next week. You know you're not really going to take the risk of going for the elite, and you might do you might win. Or you can do the under twenty three, and you probably will win. Um, and if it was a normal season, and we had three World Cups, and you do the first one, you win; second one, you win; third one, you try the elites. Then you can decide whether you wanted to do the elites or not. And then maybe you would have rode the elites. But yeah, in, in last year with COVID and everything, it was not really. Uh, it was just how it was. So I can kind of settle with that. I hey, I think that's a great explanation. That's yeah. fantastic. It, it's a title. It's a title, man. No one can take that away from you anymore. So awesome. Well done. Thanks. Let's jump back into the times today. You had a very good start into this season. Third in Körner, Strada Bianchi, which is a damn hard race. You finished fifth. You're still racing now. What's your future program? Like, uh, what's your goals for the rest of the season And any more crossovers with mountain biking, cyclocross, road racing, or what's your plans here? Yeah, so, well, now it's halfway through the Classic, so I have Dwarves Door and Flanders. Um, I just had a cold, weirdly. Somehow I've caught a cold. Um, so I was a bit, yeah, off in E3. So I have Dwarves Door Flanders now, uh, this, this week. Um, and then I do the Ardennes. Then I switch to mountain biking and I do a few World Cups. Um, and then I do Tour of Austria and then hopefully the Olympics. But the Olympics is, uh, well, I, GB should have a place. But the way that GB will get a place is dependent on other nations. So, yeah. So the Olympics for mountain biking? Mountain biking, Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's yeah, that's quite wild. Hopefully, I mean, you then only just turned 22 years old. Are you hopefully going to take a little break then or you go straight back into the cross season? I mean, come on, you're yeah, yeah you're I, raw I talent, take a break, I but take a break. You're only 22 years old, you, you got to take some time off at some moment, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I had a break after. I have a break after. I actually have more breaks than normal people, but I just yeah, have a bit less time off. Um, so I take a break in. But when is it? What month is it? It's March, April. In May, I take a break, and then I actually think from May until October, I will because I'll do the first few cross rounds in America. Because that's where the world champs is. And then I'll take a break after that. Well, that sounds you take a break at Christmas time. Holy smokes. <laughs> You're the man. <laughs> Jeez, you must have a big engine, my friend. And during his break period, quote unquote break period that he just mentioned. Oh, there's a little thing called the Olympics in between. Um, oh, yeah. Got to do that. Would you consider if you qualify and if everything works out, Can you also do the Olympic road race as well as the Olympic mountain biking? Is that uh, all a possibility? Well, I am, I am on the long list for the Olympic road race, but the road race comes before the mountain bike. So it would kind of, yeah, it, wouldn't mean, it would mean that I wouldn't 100% be committed into the mountain bike, which is where I have the most chances of a medal. So we decided that I wouldn't even consider riding the road race. For a young guy, you have a lot going on. And that kind of leads me into my next question. What does a soon-to-be 22-year-old do during his rest time or during his off time? I mean, do you have any any hobbies, any interesting projects in the works? I mean, you, with, with that much biking, you got to have a disconnect. You have to have something that takes your mind and your creative spirit off of that what 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 else do you do to fill up your days i play a lot of xbox <laughs> um xbox is my downtime i like i like going just driving my car um 
yeah, I just, I just, to be honest, I'm, I'm quite good at not doing anything and that's probably why I'm good at riding my bike. So I don't really have much else I do. Talking Xbox, did you play Halo? My sons used to play Halo when it came out. You used to play that as well? I, I, I used to play Halo, yeah. Yeah. Halo's, I don't think there is a Halo anymore, actually. No, not in a moment. No, no, no. But when it came out, the latest version. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was a pretty good game. Yeah, the, the boys were yeah. into it because they have your age. So, yeah, that's why I thought I yeah, asked. Yeah, I played Halo. So, hey, you want to tell us something about uh, your app you involved with, you're working with. What's the story behind that? Yeah, so, you know, over the last, I would say, what, six months, maybe more, um, me and my friend Jack have been, and also now uh, Doug, three of us have been working on an app um, to basically make it easier for people to plan, create, and join group rides um like so yeah cycling group group rides um especially like with the boom in cycling at the moment i think and and the influx of new riders new cyclists who kind of yeah need to find their their way and people to ride with and things it's it's kind of designed for them to help to help them find other people to ride with also current riders to find or plan group rides with their friends and yeah i'll have cafes on the app so you can find the best cycling cafes if you go on holiday you can find group rides to ride if you have a weekly ride you can create a group a recurring ride and plan where you're going to go um you can look for sportifs on this app and it's, it's kind of Just putting everything together into one app, you know, people have WhatsApp groups for rides, but it kind of turns into, yeah, just a chat. Um, so it's kind of to make it easier and also, yeah, like I said, new riders and and also when people go on holiday, making it easier for them to find rides. What is the name? Uh, when is it going to be launched? Can we find it? Is it on the App Store? Yeah, so it's going to be launched... The moment, end of April, um, it provided there's not any like major things that need to be fixed with the app before it's launched. Um, and it's called Link My Ride. So yeah, on social media, on website, you can people can find more information on it. And yeah, that's also one of my yeah. I kind of forget about it because it seems like a a job now. I guess um, even though I did the least work out of the three of us. Um, <laughs> One of my uh, things I do in my time when I'm not riding my bike. So the way it works, if I fly, let's say, end of this year, I fly to London, I go on Link My Ride, yeah. I go, I look for an easy coffee stop ride, two hours. And then it shows me the next available rides in one hour and two hours and three hours. Yeah, so the, it's a bit like Zwift, but it's also got a map which will have pins on you know, different icons for different things. Um, so it can show, you can filter it to ability, distance, a few other things. Um, and yeah, find rides when you want to go. And it also has like a, like a events page in chronological order. So you can also look there and yeah, find it, find a ride that you want to go on. Find, yeah. That's that a great idea. pretty handy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I can't wait to check it. Honestly, I can't wait to see it. Tommy P, listen, we, we don't want to get you in trouble with, with Dave B or any of the coaches there. You got some races coming up, some big races, Dwarves Dwar, and of course, La Ronda. So we'll let you go. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us during your busy race season. Maybe in the future, we'll get you back on to, to talk about e-bikes. Because um, I have a lot more questions about that, but I don't want to keep you up any longer. <laughs> sure. Sure. Let me know. <laughs> thanks thank for joining guys. us. Hey, thank you. Every week we do reward a Shutter Blacks trophy for the ride of the week. It ha can be a win, it can be a spectacular fail, it can be a courageous ride. 
And so whatever seems to be special out there, we give away the Shutterblex Award. So Bobby, who is your Shutterblex ride for this week? I am going to say Marianne Voss. She had maybe a little bit slow slash winless start to the season. But when you look at her results, she's gone Strada Bianchi, seventh, Grand Prix Ottenham, third, Trofea Alfredo Binda, second, and then she wins Ghent Wevelgem. Uh, that's pretty impressive. She has, you know, people have written her off. She's been around the sport for, what, 15 years. She's 32. She just changed teams. And that's another thing. She eats pressure for breakfast. I mean, prior to the women's race finishing, Jumbo Visma won the race with Walt Van Aert. Talk about pressure. And she came through with the goods. And I, I have to give my Shut Up Legs award to Marion Voss this year, this, this week, I'm sorry. That's a good pick, my friend. So here comes my pick. My award goes to Team Ineos for a clean sweep on a podium in Settimana Catalonia. Because I must say, I had them almost written off for the season. They had a bit of a slower start to the season and I'm so glad I was wrong. They are back to full strength and I can't wait for the big battle between Jumbo Visma and Team Ineos Grenadiers in the big races yet to come. And to our listeners out there, a, a funny little side note, our boy, the Yenzi, as he's known, just put on a shut up legs baseball hat. Okay, where do we get one of those, Yenzi? Well, first of all, I always wanted to say this. Fashion first. <laughs> um, I actually um, joined up with a company based in Denver, Primal. And they make a Shutterblex collection. We do a cycling kit, a few base caps, socks, gloves. Shutterblex cycling kit is out there. And yeah, I just got to wear my own hat here. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Tom for being our guest. And please feel free to check his new app. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review. And don't forget to share us with your friends. The show was a Valley News production in association with Chuck Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne. And this episode was edited by Kirk Warner. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.